Hey everybody, this is Gene Marks and welcome back to another episode of Biz Books, where I speak to some super smart authors of some great business books, hopefully to uh, give you some of the flavor of what the book is about and um, give you some good content as well to learn from. Today, I'm speaking to the authors of Upstream Marketing, Unlock Growth by Using the Principles of Insight, Identity, Innovation. Um, I have Tim Kelzer, I have uh, Kristen Kurth. Both of them are the co-founders of Equibrand Consulting. So first of all, thank you both for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having us, Jane. Yeah. Uh, hey, Kristen, ladies first. Uh, first. All right. Let me ask a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your background and how you came to uh, joining up with Tim and writing this book. Sure. So I have spent my um, career in both upstream marketing and downstream marketing. I started actually way back when as a media planner on the Procter & Gamble business and then in advertising and worked for what was now Havas, BBDO Chicago, and spent um, several years at Ogilvy mm -hmm. Chicago, where I was a senior partner and um, ran some global businesses for them. And then switched over to doing some strategy consulting. I kind of took the classic packaged goods background, um, did some work with a design shop that worked in financial services and got to work on some amazing brands. For the last 20 years, I have been working with Tim. Uh, we co-founded Equibrand Consulting and um, basically everything that we've done as a company and just in our careers is really reflected in the book, um, Upstream Marketing. So Tim, I will say, took the lead and putting pen to paper and kept us going, but it's been a labor of love and we're really excited to talk about it today. Yeah, I got the same take as well. And Tim, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. It seems like this book is like the culmination of like your entire careers of being in the marketing world. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's exactly right. Like Chris and I started in the advertising business, um, worked for a couple of agencies, then went back to business school, got out, worked for three different consulting firms, and each one provided a little bit of perspective that over the years I found very compelling. The first was, well, was Accenture, which was kind of the retail distribution practice. I worked there for a while, then moved over to a company, a new product development company, spent a couple of years there. So really got into the innovation piece. Then moved to a company out of another company out of Chicago that's really into uh, strategy and insight, a lot of segmentation, targeting, positioning, concept development. And my final firm was out here in the Bay Area, which was um, a firm that was more brand strategies, that was more identity work. So I found over the years that I was learning enough about different things. And when we started the firm 20 years ago, it was kind of like, let's start with a white, you know, clean whiteboard and say, what have we learned and what do we find? can really help our clients grow. And it came down to insight, a deeper level of customer understanding, identity, which is helping develop build powerful brands, and then innovation, helping develop a new stream of revenues for new products and services. So each, each company kind of provided perspective, then it kind of rolled up into upstream marketing, which we think differentiates our firm. Because we don't do a lot of the traditional brand strategy. We don't do logos and, and websites and collateral material. We focus more on the strategy, which we kind of term upstream marketing um, which kind of fits what we do. And Tim, is Equibrand Consulting, I mean, can you describe for me like your typical client? Is it generally, a, you know, a, you know a, a larger company, enterprise type company, um, or do you deal with smaller companies as well? It tends to be the larger clients. Um, we, we are, we, we're, we're kind of industry agnostic. We don't really, we find a lot of industries appreciate kind of that classic training that Kristen talked about. So 
our background is more in the heritage of consumer products and traditional consumer products and that kind of marketing. But we find many clients that are in financial services, that are in healthcare, that are in pharmaceuticals, finance, insurance, all those companies uh, we've worked with, they tend to be larger companies. But one of the reasons we wrote Upstream Marketing specifically was to share the knowledge that we know works with those companies to other companies. So we have you know, a website, upstreammarketing.com, which kind of makes a little bit more specific, I think, to smaller companies that are that don't you know want to hire a consulting firm, but still want to tap into the knowledge and the insight. So that's kind of how I would characterize it. Got it. Kristen, throughout the book, um, you guys you guys really kind of focus on some of these you know, these leading blue chip brand names, Starbucks, Google, Southwest, Amazon, Nike, Apple, Disney. They, you know, they keep coming back and back again in your book because you guys keep using them as examples um, of, of some of the practices that you're, you're, that you're promoting and you're recommending. Um, I'm kind of curious how you landed on those companies. Yeah, I, I think it was interesting because when you walk into a room, I always do this, I teach, I'm also a, an adjunct professor and I'll ask the students, when you think of the biggest and best brands out there, you know, who comes to mind? And those companies that we have studied over time are certainly top of mind right. for a lot, but we want to level deeper. We've, you know, really studied them deeply, have, you know, read a lot about their founders. Tim's actually spent some time at some of them, um, you know, directly. And they are the companies, and I'll let him elaborate, that are going to be around, you know, 30 years from now, when, you know, when people are talking about the biggest and best brands, there are a lot of great, exciting brands out there today, but those that have applied the principles of insight, identity, and innovation, and truly build their businesses through the eyes of their customers and have done so successfully and sustainably, you know, that's why they've ended up on our list. And Tim, you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, one thing in particular, Gene, that we didn't do, which which your book, you're probably familiar with Good to Great. You know, I think it's probably one of the best business books ever written. And they profile a number of companies. They did a, a financial analysis, statistical analysis, yes. to find which companies mm -hmm. were the best and which, which were not so good and how to get there. I don't know what percentage of companies are no longer on that list, but but since publishing that book, you know, 20, 30, I don't even know how many, how many years old it is, but a lot of the companies that they profiled as being the best went bankrupt. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and that book is still a great book, but you yes. go through there and you can list four or five companies that are no longer with us. And I think so, of, uh, I think of Xerox as one of the yeah, ones. Xerox, yeah, I think, you know, one of the other, IBM. there's a few. Yeah, exactly. And so we didn't spend the time saying which are the greatest companies and do the financial analysis, but we knew anecdotally that these are the companies that, um, you know, a lot of people point to as having some of the strongest businesses and brands in the world. So we wanted to understand them. And the other thing we did is we didn't start from now. We went back. And said, what you know, what was what was the foundation of Disney like with Walt Disney, with Steve Jobs, you know, with Jeff Bezos? And so it wasn't just taking a point where they are, but what kind of brought them along and what were the foundational principles that that they really espoused and continue to espouse many years after they're gone. So it's really a kind of a profile of, of a certain number of companies, but then applying our our business case, because we do consulting for a lot of firms, and we're saying, you know, that that one works, that one really doesn't work. And so it was a, an application of looking at best practices, but also drawing from our own clients, what worked and what didn't, frankly. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes a, a, across as well is, I mean, this is a marketing and a branding book. I mean, you know, good to great. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of talk about operational issues, you know, right. even non-sales. This is more like, 
right yeah. your culture, what your brand is, and and you know what your relationship is with your customers. Exactly. And I also have to also uh, point out, I'm, I'm glad you guys focused on those those well-known brands because, frankly, if you were talking about lesser-known companies, it it's not as um, um, it, it, it doesn't strike the same chord, you know? I mean, we deal with Starbucks and Google and Amazon every day. So um, it is. it just makes sense to go about that approach. All right, so Tim, let me start with you. Um, first of all, the, the book itself is, it's it's broken out into three parts. There's a, there's a first principle is insight. Second yeah. principle is identity. Third you know, principle is innovation. So let's spend a few minutes you know, on insight. So I'm going to ask you about the the deprivation study that you talked about where backpacks were taken away from, from kids. Yeah. Tell us that's a little bit about that and why that's important for insight. It was just a novel approach. We were working for the one of the big backpack companies. It was um, Jansport a number of years ago. So this is work that we did a number of years ago. And, and you know, they, they had hired consultants before we came in and they were trying to understand how we improve the backpack. And it was very much a backpack focus mindset you know how what, what can we do with the suspension load or the pockets or and and then we say well let's let's start even further back and say what if what if we were to take the kids backpack away from their school week what would that be like and so we went to the school and filmed and actually another firm kind of helped us th through this but they filmed an episode where kids didn't have their backpacks so they're literally carrying their 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 pack you know their their books down the down the down the hall stopping and it, it became very evident that it was more than just the you know the size of the pocket that the backpack meant to them and organization there was a social component because that time at that time many kids would put like stickers and emblems on the back of their backpack so it was a much more experiential perspective and that was the deprivation study that we deprived the kids of their backpack for about a week filmed it and the client said that was very instrumental in, in identifying new insights that they wouldn't have normally received had they just focused on the backpack itself we were trying to provide a larger perspective and that 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 information was very compelling in helping new product development and also messaging and positioning. Makes sense. Uh, Kristen, I'm going to turn to you. We're still on the uh, on, on the insight principle. Um, and you guys spend some time about about proprietary insights. And I was wondering if you can comment on you know what a proprietary insight is and just some of the tips that you that you laid out on obtaining proprietary insight. There's a bunch of them and I can I can read some of them out to you if you forget just off the oh. top of your head, but tell yeah. us about No, you know, proprietary insight, we think is what leads to competitive advantage. And one of the questions that we ask our customers consistently is, what do you know about your most important customers that your competitors don't know? Mm. And we think within that, uncovering those insights is really what leads to competitive advantage. So how do you get them? Um, there are lots of ways that we've conducted research and we're big, we're very big on having a balanced approach to research. So qualitative research like the deprivation study or ethnographic research where in the small kitchen um, category, spending time with people using the actual appliances and what the role of that product and all that it, you know, that it represents, what that role is in the life of a customer. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the nuggets of insight for new product development, for deepening the relationship with that customer, as we call it, the brand. Um, those are the types of insights that are, you know, going to be very different than what you would get if you 
sent out surveys and, you know, which are also very helpful and they can be proprietary, but we're really into balancing qualitative with quantitative and trying to get at those insights that our competitors don't have. Got it. And you talk about like three types of benefits. There's anti-benefits, driver benefits, reassurance benefits. Um, Can you expand on, on what those benefits are? Sure. Let me give you an example from the auto category. We've done some work in automotive. And many, many years ago, when, you know, Honda was building its brand, it represented something that stood out in the automotive category. And those benefits that it brought to the world were uh, durability, quality, and reliability. And at the time, those were differentiating benefits. Over the years, as competitors have upgraded and up-leveled, you know, the technology and automotive and that whole industry, categories changed. But if you don't have what we call DQR, durability, quality, reliability, you're never going to compete in automotive. So those three things that were differentiating benefits last, you know, years ago are now really the price to play. We call those anti-benefits. If you don't have them, you probably won't compete. Hmm. Those benefits ladder up to more um, rational, there's still rational benefits, but they get at, you know, what is really driving your interest in all of that. So at the lowest level of our benefit hierarchy are functional attributes of a car. You know, there's a, there's a, you know, an engine and there are, you know, design elements, there are services, et cetera. But when you ask a customer, so okay, so what does that do for you? The first thing they'll say is, well, you know, it gives me a way to get from point A to point B. You know, it gives me all, you know, the right. Those are rational benefits. You know, what are the things that it does for the customer? Rational benefits ladder up to emotional benefits. So if, you know, you're asking the question, okay, you keep probing, well, what does that do for you? Well, what does that do for you? You ultimately get to the point, what does that say about you? And those are the more emotional benefits, like in the automotive category. If you drive a luxury vehicle that says you've arrived or you're successful, or, you know, in certain categories, we work with cars where people feel smart because they've achieved um, the ability to purchase a luxury auto. So that's really what we mean from, you know, functional lower level attributes that ladder up to rational and then emotional. And Tim, you can, you know, yeah, and the only thing I would say is <laughs> reassurance, annies are table stakes. Like Kirsten said, you have to have them to be even in the consideration set. Right, right. So, frankly, we work with certain clients that haven't even addressed the antis. So it's hard to get to a driver benefit, which is what, what drives decision, what distinguishes or one company from the other, one brand from the other. So anti-driver and the highest orders, as Chris was saying, is reassurance. It's something that's kind of often at times on the margin of the company's been around for 100 years or they have a warranty or a trust factor. So it's important not to think just about one benefit, but how do they work together as a portfolio? And you have to have all three, because if you just focus on the antis, you're going to be a commodity. Anybody can do that. So you need to you need to also include differentiation, which is a driver benefit. Then the reassurance is more the halo where a lot of the emotional connection that Kristen was talking about really comes into play. And do you have to construct uh, this benefit hierarchy, you know, on a product by product basis if you're, you know, or, or can you do this, you know, as a firm, you know, in, in its entirety? 
You can do it both ways. You know, you can do it. Um, sometimes we work at corporate level marketing. Like, what does the corporation stand for? What's the positioning of the corporation? Other times we're at we're at a very specific level of different, you know, a product within the corporation. So a lot of these principles hold. So whether you're dealing at the corporate level or a very product level or a large corporation or a small corporation, we find that the frameworks and the tools really hold. So relevance, differentiation, credibility is one framework that you probably saw in the book. Yep. Anti-tribe reassurance is another framework that we used in the book. And so we apply these tools and frameworks that we know to be proven across industries, products, different levels, um, and you can get a lot of insight that way. Well, talking about frameworks, uh, Tim, I'll stay on you. Um, you, you. You actually like highlighted three growth strategy frameworks. Can you can you talk a little bit about them? There's like the two point two by two matrix and yeah. the conventional market. You know, just talk a little bit about what you mean by growth strategy framework. Yeah, so the first one a lot of people think about is um, two by two matrix. Is it a, a product, existing product or a new product? And is it focused on a customer, a new customer or an existing customer? Right. And so if you think about, you know, if I can, I can, it's a two by two matrix because I'm talking about products and customers. And that's the basic level of marketing. It's like, do I expand and grow by attracting new customers or do I expand and grow by um, developing new products? So it's mm -hmm. kind of a, uh, a very important tool, but it's, it's limited because you're thinking about new versus existing and products and customers, very straightforward. The next level is what a lot of companies use, which is more of a segmentation. And there are a variety of ways to segment the marketplace. And one is based on demographics, you know, women 18 to 54 or men 50 plus or right. male versus female or college educator not. So that's kind of the second level, which is traditional segmentation. And you can also expand that to geographic segmentation, um, behavioral segmentation, attitudinal segmentation. That's the second level. The third level, is really when you combine different influences. So you're combining this traditional segmentation, but with a deeper level of insight. Um, and so you're really looking to, to apply that to the organization in a way that a traditional segmentation will not. So that does require proprietary um, insight. Because if I were to say, I'm gonna segment my consumers, adults 18 to 54, that are certain socioeconomic income, anybody has that information. But if I can own my segmentation, and if I can develop a customer framework that's proprietary to our organization, we know it's true in the marketplace, that provides us with a leg up and that provides competitive differentiation. Are these you know, growth strategy, these frameworks, are they independent of each other or can, can you be using more than one at a time? Yeah, you can use more than one at a time. We kind of go through, you know, first, second, third, the, you know, there's a cost and expense and getting deeper insight. So there can be a lot of value just in saying as a company and, you know, maybe there's a small business uh, owner listening in, my brother is a, is a small business retailer and it's like, mm -hmm. he's in the pharmacy industry. It's like, all right, I can either get, I can either add new products to my, to my set or try to gain new customers, new products, you know, historical pharmaceutical where they sell, you know, retail products and pharmaceutical products. And they said, well, our new product offering is going to be home health because mm -hmm. we know there's a trend there. So that's an example where it's still the same customer, but they're providing new products. Conversely, they could say, you know, we're not going to go into health home health, but we're going to go into free delivery, same basic product, but I'm adding another service. So it's useful to think about a product um, market construct as the first level, because that can provide a lot of insight, but then, you know, deeper insight comes with deeper understanding. And so we expand that out into different factors and attitudes and motivations and behaviors is real where the real insight comes. 
Kristen, um, we're going to, we'll move off of insights just a minute, but I, I'd love you to just share um, with our audience just what, what is meant by a targeting paradox. And you guys give examples of both Nike and mm-hmm. Apple that, that yeah. went through this. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting and I was hoping that you could, you could expand yeah. on it. And it's really fascinating when we see this in action. So the basic premise of the targeting paradox is that the more focused you are on a segment of customers, the more successful you'll likely be. Okay. Um, so picture a, the bullseye. Here's the problem. Every organization wants to, they don't want to leave anything on the table. It's always like, who do you right. target? And they say, well, we do these and we do those. And we, we, we focus here and everybody's trying to be all things to all people True. while in doing that you can really dilute your value your brand and you can dilute your efforts so what nike does well is at the center of their bullseye or gatorade for that matter is a performance athlete very very specific everything they do from product development to marketing to um you know everything advertising whatever it might be promotion it's really focused on the performance athlete. Now we both know millions and millions of consumers don't fit that profile, but they are what we call the consumption market. Um, the marketing target is the center. The consumption market is what, you know, who is the, who does that proposition appeal to? Right. So in really focusing on a narrower target, you end up being more to more people. So it's just that recognition of focus helping. I was going to give the example of this book, actually. I mean, you know, your book itself is is clearly a marketing book targeted at marketing professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. And that's sort of your, you know, that's your, yeah. your strategic market. But the paradox there is that um, there's there's this wider you know audience of people out there that want to learn more about marketing you know uh, and they can be business owners or managers or you know they're not necessarily marketing professionals but they know that these concepts are important so like Nike they're you know they're they're trying to be these these high performance athletes but we all consider ourselves to be the high performance athletes to some extent you know so their products appeal to it all just like your book could appeal to you know, a wider audience than just that sort of target that you're going after. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Fact, Gene, was... good work. You actually <laughs> did read this book. Yeah, you read it for sure. But you it... totally got it. I don't even think I thought of that. <laughs> no, I, I did. I did because it's really important because that's exactly, I, actually, I didn't make that connection, Gene. Thank you for doing that. But sure. when we wrote the book, we, we kind of said, we want this to be like good to great, but for marketing. Right. That was kind of we wanted to bring in case examples. We wanted to tell a little bit of story. We wanted to bring through some themes that people could kind of hang their hat on, um, knowing it would never be as great as good to great, but knowing there was a framework that they used. So if there's even the number of chapters, and we tried to model this after that, knowing that it had broader application than just marketing, just as good to great does. Right. It's probably the number one business book, and it's you know read by people in many different fields and just you know just organization and strategy and not-for-profits and people just interested in other companies. So that's why we try to weave together the stories that would have broader application than just marketing people. But you're absolutely right. Our, our center of our bullseye was, you know, the, the senior vice president of uh, marketing that has been doing this for a number of years. So it's, we kind of our target, frankly, was people that know marketing, but want to know it better. But right. we hope it, it, broad, it, you know, pulls from a broader set of customers because we think there's broad application. 
Yeah, it's um, yeah, but it's funny. I was just listening to a podcast. It was uh, Lix Friedman was interviewing Magnus Carlson um, about you know who's the you know world's greatest chess player. And I'm not even that big fan of chess. I mean, it's you know it's a fun game. But I listened to the interview um, mainly because I wanted to learn more about him, and I also wanted to learn more about chess, even though I'm nowhere near that level in the chess world, you know? So again, there is, there is that, that apply. Tim, before we move on then to the second principle, you know, we've been talking about the first principle, which is insight. And there's, there's, you, you, there's a lot to unpack here. So just for the, for the reader, for your readers that are walking away from that first section, what are you kind of hoping that they're, they're you know, the, the, the overall takeaway from that first principle of insight that you want them to walk away with? Yeah, I mean, it's over overstated, but just get close to your customer, live and breathe and, and understand them. You know, we get hired. So many companies start with a very deep understanding of who their customers. And then over time, they, they lose focus. They work in the business versus on the business. So they, they they have to hire firms like us, but they don't really. There's insight in there for many. If you're if you're a um, an owner of, a you know, of a retail store or a um, you know, somebody in, in, in the hotel industry, mm-hmm. there's a lot of insight that anybody can get through, you know, uh, TripAdvisor or just talking to their customers, you know, leaving a little note at the end of their, their stay and fill this out. So these are little things, but it's it's a, really a sign of how customer sensitive are we? And it's all about being customer. And, you know, Amazon wants to be known as the most customer driven company in the world. And I think they've been successful in large part because of that. And so, you know, it's, it's really that customer sensitivity um, immersing yourself in their experience because that's where really the foundation is for insight, excuse me, for identity and innovation, which are the other two chapters of the book. Or the yeah, it's book. interesting. I mean, the so that makes complete sense to me. So our, you know, our first principle, insights, that's where we're looking at the customers, which then Kristen now brings us into the second principle, which to me, it seems now this is all about us as an organization, identity. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I got that right. And, and I'd, I'd love you to pick up from where Tim sort of left off Kristen and say, okay, what, you know, as we go into the second principle, which is identity, before I even start that, that, that section of the book, what would you expect me to hopefully learn from that section when I'm finished it? Well, actually we are talking about identity from a strategic upstream perspective. Okay. So when I say brand identity, most people think about the look and feel and the logo and the voice of a brand, but we're talking about the strategic um, foundation of a brand. Okay. You know, how is it positioned? What we want people to understand is before you start downstream spending a lot of dollars on implementation of strategies like, you know, paying designers, digital marketing expenses, you know, filming things, you know, social media, all of these downstream expenses can be there can be a lot of wasted resources there if you don't have an identity foundation for the brand that's based on the brand strategy. So that is one, positioning. What do we want to stand for in the minds of our customers? You know, what's our customer value proposition? Right. You know, how do we uniquely address with the benefits of our, our product or service or offering address the needs of our customers and what operational mandates, you know, what are the assets, the capabilities that have to align with that? So these are more foundational, but, you know, at the end of the day, I like to define a brand. The best um, definition of a brand to me was a brand, you know, it can be um, a relationship that a customer has with a product or service offering very generally. 
And I really like that definition because, and when you think about how, you know, marketing has evolved, you know, today we all talk about customer experiences, you know, identity is kind of the internal work of who am I? What's my purpose? Why am I here? What do I stand for? And what do I want? What kind of relationship do I want with my customers? So that's just kind of a, um, you know, I want people to understand that there's a strategic identity in addition to the more common, you know, brand identity, logo, look and feel. Understood. Understood. So I'm going to stay with you, Kristen, on that because you mentioned value propositions and um, and you guys given your book some great examples. I can think of no better company, at least is my personal opinion, that gives a, that value proposition than Starbucks. <laughs> and I was, mm -hmm. you know, I was hoping Kristen can explain you know, explain to us like why, you know, what, what you say Starbucks's value proposition is and, and how they go about getting that message out. Okay. I'll get you started on the value proposition. Imagine three columns for those who don't have the book. The first column is the customer's needs. So what are your customers really asking for? Mm -hmm. And for Starbucks, the first one is I just need great coffee to start my day. Okay. That's what they want. They want a product offering like Starbucks offers. And then the middle column is what unique benefits do we deliver as Starbucks to meet that customer need? Mm -hmm. And so for Starbucks, it's the work they do at selecting beans and putting together, you know, what is their offering of coffee, the unique Starbucks coffee. And then the, the last column are the operations that, uh, you know, how do they go about doing this? How do they actually deliver on that promise of good coffee is, you know, the growers that they have relationships with, you know, it's very product focused, their first plank, sure. um, but aligning those three things are what the customer value proposition is. But Starbucks, you know, and you can debate whether or not their coffee is great, good, you know, whatever, everybody will argue with you. It, it, what's the right answer? But what they've gone to market doing is building it out that Starbucks is so much more than a cup of coffee in the yes. morning. They've created an experiential brand. And Tim, you might want to talk through the more important planks. Yeah, well, the, the value product. planks, right? Exactly. Yeah, value first, planks. First is product. The second is, is is the service experience. So when you're when you you know how the group the barista meets you or greets you, they're supposed to know you if they know your name, they use your name, remember your order provide that personal experience even though there are 30,000 stores or more across the, the the globe they want to provide a personal experience so the service is very much de defined to 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 um align with that the third plank down is all about the ambience every starbucks store is designed to be slightly different to, to reflect the neighborhood hmm. uh, so you won't find a lot of cookie cutter stores i mean I'll, I'll, they'll have certain components but they're designed to have a, a, a personal experience that was the third plank. And then the fourth was something they, they I think they rolled out, you know, eight or 10 years ago. The strategy was make it a third place. Hmm. Home and office, Starbucks strategy at the time, this is pre-COVID, was to come enjoy a cup of coffee, free Wi-Fi, comfortable seats, spend some time, you know, which, which results in greater revenue for them in the afternoon. So that was the fourth plank. Uh, and the fifth plank was social inclusion, which is really directed at the employees themselves. Starbucks knew that to create a strong brand, they had to start with the customers. And so social inclusion, you know, how they, they offer um, their employees, you know, free college uh, tuition assistance, 
a number of other things that are were revolutionary at the time to try to attract the customer or their, their employees because they realize how important that value plank is to the Starbucks experience. So it really is about an experience more than just the coffee. And I think that's why they've been successful. Do you think, Tim, that, that Starbucks actually had this in mind from the very beginning? Do you really do you think they had these planks or something, you know, similar to you? Know? I think they had the the three, you know, like the coffee service experience and the ambience. Those are kind of the three. And then if you read and we, you know, we profile each of these companies. Yeah. Spent a lot of time. And they did say, hey, we're going to make a specific strategy decision to offer this third space, this third place. And that was driven based on the customer needs, but also, you know, they need to fill the store in the afternoon. And what better way to give, you know, coffee and, and Wi-Fi and, and a place for people to meet? Because remember, you know, Years ago, it was like everybody would pay for Wi-Fi. That was a mm-hmm. way to to add revenue. So Starbucks said, "Well, we could do that, or we could invite people to stay throughout the day, um, and ultimately it was more profitable for them." Which is why they ad- introduced other certain products that are more um, important during different day parts as well. So the, all the teas and all the cold ice drinks—that's all driven by consumer needs, but also aligns with the strategy. So it goes back to what Kristen was saying: it's what's the need. What's the benefit? And then how do we align our operations against that? Kristen, I'm going to uh, you know, you know, finish on this one principle with you. Um, at the very you know, end of the section, you guys go into quite a lot of detail about brand management and uh, the four keys of brand management. And you guys both write a lot about Apple and how it built its sort of brand architecture. And you point out that it uses clarity and synergy and you know, leverage it. Can you, can you expand a little bit on what you know, you know, what is meant by brand architecture and why it's important to brand manager and uh, to brand management and, and, you know, what was so special about what Apple did? Yeah. Um, so brand, brand, we do a lot of work in brand architecture. And I will say even more recently, there seems to be really high demand in the marketplace for brand architecture. Mm. And the reason for that is, you know, think about businesses that have been around for a hundred years. You know, they've acquired brands and businesses over the years. They've tucked them under whatever the master primary brand and they, you know, go on and do business and they launch products and everybody has to name a product. And if you're in a division of a, you know, big pharmaceutical company and you have, you know, a lot of products well, you're going to naturally want to name them if you're a marketing person in that, you know, organization, well, what ends up happening is a proliferation, too many brands, too many names, where the entire structure, if you're a customer-driven organization, is very confusing to an end customer. So architecture is really focusing on one primary brand Mm -hmm. and aligning the portfolio of products and services that you offer um, to, you know, really limit the number of brands and the way, or make it clear to the customer, these are the products we offer under these names. You know, make it possible that if you sell, for instance, an Apple product that's, you know, a computer laptop and somebody, you know, sees Apple as, you know, uh, the ear pods, whatever, Mm -hmm. that there's synergy across the portfolio. Right. And that you can, you know, cross sell because of the strength in the master brand or the primary brand, and then you can sell across. So there's synergy or clarity, synergy, and then how do you leverage that brand in ways that can help you grow 
by offering new products and services under that one brand, as opposed to having names and you know offerings all over. This is the way to structure the portfolio of offerings so the customer sees it through a simpler lens, you know, than the organization behind it with you know a lot of products and services. It it's for more efficiency. You know, companies save a lot of money by th this brand architecture work. They also have better relationships with customers because they are really making it clear. I, Apple is a great example. Everything, it, it's such a clear architecture that started way back when with the, the, you know, the look of the Apple, but also the first computer that they launched right. and how now everything has flown and everything is named in a very strategic organized structure that you always know and and even the way that they built it downstream everything looks and feels very apple-esque so that's really those are the goals of brand architecture and tim you can probably add to this about no, some I of the work we've done here no i think you're right it's it's you know how do you structure your brands so there's clarity synergy and leverage and sure. if you uh, like the coca-cola company that's the name of the company but they've got coke diet coke sprite Diet Coke, caffeine-free. So it's really how you think about how do we structure our portfolio so there's meaning in the in the in the organization. You know, you know who's done like a, a terrible job at that. And this is my opinion, so you guys don't have to agree or disagree. But uh, but you know, Microsoft I think is almost the opposite of that. You know, um, it's a, a mishmash of products with different designs, different logos, different names to them. Do you know what I mean? Totally. A lot of that is internally driven, either through acquisitions, like Kristen mentioned, they acquire yeah. a company and they haven't ingrained it. Or they've got a brand manager at some level in the organization says, I need a new brand to create excitement and, and news. And, and that's true at that one case. But when you look across 50 products, you know, wait, we have a mess on our hands. And so there's reason to do it, but it really requires that discipline and, and the top down, because these are tough decisions. Brands are very personal. People spend their lives creating and investing and building a brand. And if, if the company gets acquired, and they say, well, you know what, your brand is going to go away. That's a hard decision. So it really has to be embedded in the organization, we're going to focus on a primary brand and the notion of we put more wood behind one arrow. You know, we want to focus on IBM or or, or sure. Apple. We want to focus on Amazon. And so, companies are learning that that it's better to have a strategy and a structure upfront as opposed to find yourselves a number of years with a mess on your hands. So we've talked about insights, which is gaining you know gaining knowledge about your customers and the products that you sell. Um, you know, and how they're perceived, how they're used. Um, we've then, you know, talked about our own identities, you know, building a value proposition, uh, designing and aligning those value propositions, having value planks, managing our brand. Um, all of that takes a lot of work. I get that. But um, hopefully if we're, if, if we're moving along in that direction, um, we can really start innovating, you know, and, and, and that's your third principle is innovation. Because once, you know, once companies can get to a certain level, they can really create and, and, and put forth really great products and services that can align with their, with their brands and with what their customers want. So I'm going to give each of you guys a chance. Uh, I'm going to pick Disney. I'm going to pick Google. And um, so I, you know, Tim, I'll pick on you first and I'll pick Google if that's okay. Um, okay. You write about how Google innovates and Kristen, I'm coming from you next. Cause I want to hear <laughs> from you how Disney innovates, but let's talk about Google. Um, just tell us the story of, of, of why they're so innovative and what they've done to innovate. I think I think there are a couple of specific things. Number one, they also are very much customer driven. So you know they yeah. use the data that they that they 
gain from us to continually refine and, and maximize and operate and and innovate. So a lot of theirs is pretty straightforward. They've got the data right there. They say, hey, I know my customers behaving this way. Um, they're using AI now. We haven't thought of, you know, but we're, we're relying on the data to tell us where to go. So it's a different thing. It's not a focus group per se, mm. but they're very much data driven. The other thing they did culturally is they, they walked away from this, but when they started in the earlier years, they, they gave a certain percentage of the time for their engineers to spend time doing anything that they wanted to do that they felt was gonna help the company grow. So they gave them the time and the cultural um, reinforcement to say, spend time solving customers' problems. So even if you have, a, this is your day job, we're gonna carve out a certain amount of time. I don't know what percentage it was. I think it was 20% of the time right. that you can focus on other areas. And so they did that. The other thing they did organizationally is they, they decided over the time to kind of provide some different layers. So they have like more think tank type businesses or day to day, but they did a very nice job structuring their business. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, they, they, ha they have a cash cow, which is search. Sure. And and they, they had a mindset of, you know, segmentation, targeting, positioning, constant development. Where better can we apply those dollars? And that's why they've grown so well, is they had this cash cow that allowed them to move into so many areas. And now they're the leaders in many businesses. Sure, sure. And and they also have a, they had a unique um, approach towards their, their portfolio, their their pipeline. They have the 70-20-10 the yeah. model. That's exactly right. Can you explain yeah. that? Yeah, 70% of their time was focused on, on the current business. You know, how do we improve that? 20% was more kind of that next level out, things that are in the foreseeable future. And then 10% of their time was like breakthrough stuff, which now, you know, allows them to lead the industry in, you know, auto driving and some of the healthcare stuff, things that were just a glimmer of an idea mm. 10 years ago are now reality. And that's because they're always focused and, and always kind of spending time thinking about that 10%, like where are we going to be in five years or 10 years that allows us to still focus on the main business, but apply the amount of resource. So we're always looking forward. Makes sense. All right, Kristen, your turn. Let's talk about Disney. Um, sure. How does how has Disney been innovating? So Disney as an organization, you know, just in terms of the portfolio, we all, I think we actually say this in the book. Just remember, it all started with a mouse. <laughs> and Walt Disney's vision that. and what was created from that, you know, uh, animated mouse that's turned into an empire of entertainment everything that they touch, you know, from film to books, to cartoons, to, you know, all of these different brands, you know, imagine that architecture is pretty complex, but let's talk about the Disney brand itself, like the Walt Disney world and the, you know, the theme park piece of it. One thing that's really interesting about them, and they really subscribe to using customer insight um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I was at Disney World recently, and there are people all over that park doing research at all times. And we had read through some things in terms of how they get proprietary insights. You know, we read somewhere that, you know, there's a little camera sometimes in Mickey's ear or eye that is actually filming customer reactions to certain things. They they have cameras all over the place. They I remember being quizzed by somebody on an iPad about my experience. They have data and research and all that really fuels how they improve, how they add. And another thing that they also subscribe to very clearly is segmentation. Yep. You know, the principle of segmentation when 
there are families you know that they cater to there are singles that they cater to there are retirees and 55 plus which gets into when you go to walt disney world it's beyond just theme parks there are spas now there are golf courses there are multiple theme parks for multiple needs so they really have segmented the market and when they go to invent something new i doubt that it's a lot of people sitting around rooms saying we need a new cool you know roller coaster it's about where do we have a gap in our portfolio either from a customer standpoint or a product alignment standpoint what's missing and how do we uniquely fill those gaps in a way that will help us grow and expand yeah it makes complete sense so um i know we're, we're, we're kind of running out of time here guys i'm just gonna uh turn it back give each of you guys a, a chance to just say your piece as to what you hope um, you know, or your readers will get out of reading the entire book now that we've discussed those three principles. And so, uh, Tim, I'll start with you. I mean, what, what, what do you hope I'll walk away with? I know I walked away with a lot of really great knowledge, but what do you hope? Yeah, well, thank you for that. And, and I think, you know, there's different levels of the book. Um, there are three key principles, insight, identity, and innovation. And we kind of went through that. Um, and within each book, there's a chapter that kind of goes a little, or two chapters, that go deeper on that. And so it's, it, it's kind of the peel the onion approach. You know, mm -hmm. if you are interested in just reading the, 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 you know, the first chapter, I think we think you'll get a lot of, out of it because it is based on our own experience, what works, what doesn't, as well as some deep best practices into um, best profile companies. So, um, so, you know, just really the, the focus on inside identity and innovation is, is critical. And then if, if you want to learn more, um, there's a chapter on each component it ends with um, kind of an integrated upstream marketing process that anybody can apply to their organization. You can do it. You know, we 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 do that with our clients, but the principles are the same. And then it also ends with some uh, a list of twenty questions to ask your organization to to determine whether or not and how upstream marketing might help your organization. Um, and that's the final chapter that kind of brings everything together. Kristen, can you add anything to that? <laughs> Barely. No, not really. I just think that um, I really appreciate the time for us to talk about it. It just kind of gets me excited about what's in there and what we can offer, not just the big, you know, Fortune 500-esque companies. I do a lot of work with startups. Yep. I do a lot of work with students of marketing who are very passionate about going into marketing and do work from with small to medium-sized businesses. And sometimes some of the, I think my happy, you know, outcome of this would be that somebody who is in B2B marketing gets something out of this that the principles do apply, as Tim said many times, across industries, across B2B versus B2C, whether you're a small startup to a, you know, Fortune 100. So I hope everybody finds something in there that's an aha, or a, this could really help me grow. I have to tell you guys both, uh, this is honestly, I mean, I read a lot of books. There are a lot of bullshit books out there about marketing. Um, this one is is legit. It's academic. It's very detailed. Um, it is it is a, you know, it really lays down a strategy and a mindset um, for anyone that's building a business, whether or not you're a marketing expert or not, or plan to spend your career in marketing. It, it, it really is about defining um, who your customers are and who you what you want your company to be and the way to think when it comes to innovating. So 
Um, I think it's a great book. It just it deserves to be studied more. And, and I think it really is on a level above uh, the typical marketing book that, that you see out there. And I know you guys don't have to diss your competitors. I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it does, it definitely stands above. So I want to wish you guys uh, both the best of luck with the book. Um, the book is called Upstream Marketing, Unlock Growth by Using the Principles of Insight, Identity, Innovation. Uh, Tim Kelzer, Kristen Kurth, co-founders of Equibrand Consulting. Um, guys, um, Kristen, what's, what's Equibrand's website? Oh, it's Equibrand, E-Q-U-I-B-R-A-N-D, consulting.com. Perfect. Guys, thank you both very, very much. It was a great conversation. And again, best of luck.